Welcome to a fresh episode of the Restoration Today podcast. Hey, if you're liking what you hear, please leave us a review. We would really appreciate it. Hello there. Thank you for checking out this episode of the Restoration Today podcast. Today we are talking about a kind of hot button topic, fire chasing. I am very excited to be joined by Sean Scott. He is an author. He owns his own construction company. He is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to anything related to restoration. And he ta- he knows about asbestos and lead and fire damage and water. He knows all of the things. He's an expert. He loves to write. He loves to educate the industry. And he is someone that has a background and understands fire chasing. So Sean, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate it. So let's just start by having you kind of introduce yourself and your background a little bit more. Well, so I've been in the fire restoration and construction industry for about 43 years, second generation. My dad uh, started the business in Chicago in 1937. And um, so it's been in the family for a long time. Um, I've been a uh, program contractor for some time. I'm not currently, but was in the past with uh, some of the bigger carriers. And so um, I've also worked with public adjusters. I've worked against public adjusters. So I've kind of, in my career, had a a pretty well-rounded experience with, you know, all the different players in the industry. So um, I've got a pretty good feel as far as like, you know, you know, what it looks like to wait by the phone for the, you know, call to come in and to see my competition scooping up all these jobs and then to be out there shoulder to shoulder, you know, tussling around trying to get that board up, you know, working with fire departments. So there's, um, there's a whole nother world. It's almost like a subculture of restorers that do chase and they're not bad guys. I mean, there are some bad characters out there, like in any industry, but, um, you know, it, it's a, it's a, there's a great need right now for qualified, honest, uh, hardworking restorers to fill this void in the chasing kind of world because somebody ultimately has to rebuild the house or the building. And so why can't that be you? You know, I mean, if you're a good qualified, you know, experienced you know, restorer, uh, you're just as qualified to get that as some guy who happens to be there at three o'clock in the morning, right? So um, just depends on you know, if you're up for it. (laughs) Literally. Yes. Um, Literally. Okay. So tell us a little bit about like where you're located in your market. Are there other people in your market who fire chase? Are there a lot of restoration companies in your marketplace? Like a lot of competition. What does that look like? Yeah. So I'm in this uh, San Diego County area, Southern California, and our market, I would say is relatively saturated. Um, There's a lot of uh, people that come down to San Diego from Los Angeles, Orange, Orange County, and so on, um, for instance, we just had an aircraft uh, crash yesterday or day before uh, into two homes and, you know, um, wow. their total losses. But with that, there's going to be probably 50 public adjusters from all over the state. These high profile fires tend to draw way more attention than your typical garage fire, say. But uh, yeah, so our area is you know pretty well impacted, and there's a lot of uh, companies that we see out there who are working on both sides. They get work from the carriers, and then they supplement their work uh, volume with you know periodic chasing. And now some people are just chasing a, a portion of the job. Like there's companies that just chase the contents. There's some that just want the board up and the emergency services, and there's some that just want the reconstruction, and there's some that want the whole you know enchilada. So it just depends on, you know, who you are and what your specific um, business model is. 
So I was thinking about this a little bit more before our conversation as I was kind of getting my questions and thoughts together. And part of me wondered if the term fire chasing is part of the issue. Like, I think that that term itself has somehow gotten a negative connotation. Like, I don't think it really looks like what people envision. When you think of chasing, you're thinking like you're literally following the fire truck and that's not really necessarily what it is. So can you walk through like what your definition of fire chasing is? Well, I would say fire chasing is come somewhat similar to the term guerrilla marketing. You know, um, another fo- uh, form of chasing would be the guys who storm chase. So when there's a hurricane, all of a sudden you have these armies of restoration companies and their 18 wheelers from all over the United States that, you know, make their way to Florida or, you know, Louisiana to, you know, get those big commercial floods. But not. It's the same concept. You know, there's a great need and, um, for stores, this is what we do. Um, you know, it does have a bad connotation in the sense that, uh, from one aspect, imagine you know if your home burned to the ground, and you or or let's say your your home burned and a child died in the fire. Well, you don't want to be that guy showing up, soliciting business when someone was injured or died in that fire. I mean, that would be that's probably the worst thing. That's a good way to get your 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 kicked. Yes. <laughs> for yes. a better term, yes. you know, because, you know, that's not a, that's a situation. So you need to have a lot of information uh, on the fire before you go. So mm-hmm. it used to be before the internet that you had um, people that would take a scanner and they would uh, record the calls throughout the night. And then in the morning they would play the tapes and listen to where the fires were. And then they would show up, you know, the day after and solicit. Now it's different. Now there's a, a, a mobile app that's free called Pulse Point. Uh, as an example, this is just one app. And this is something that a lot of fire departments use. It was designed for mainly for people who have heart attacks or who need emergency, emergency medical aid. So that if you were in a restaurant and you knew CPR and there was a call that somebody next door um, was uh, having, um, you know, choking on food or was having heart attack that a first responder or somebody could get there quicker than if it was called through 911 and you had to dispatch. So, you know, it's, it's meant to save time, but now that it's, you know, it's also provided this avenue for chasers to be able to know what address the fire's at, what stage is it, what, how many alarm is it, you know, is it, is it two mm-hmm. engine companies? Is it one? I mean, what part of town it's in. I mean, you have so much information now. So it's, it's much easier. So, so, okay. So let's talk a little bit more about that, that line of like, when you approach the homeowner, there's a fire and the fire department, like, are you waiting until they're like, where are your trucks? Where are you? Once you know that the fire is going on, how soon are you interacting with the home or property owner, especially when you don't necessarily know you might know if there are injuries, depending on how soon you get there, you may not. So when are you approaching the homeowner to talk to them? Well, I mean, there's a couple schools of thought on that. Well, number one, it's against the law to interfere with the fire department mm-hmm. when they're on scene doing their investigation or suppressing the fire. So you got to wait till the fire trucks leave. And once they leave, then it's kind of, you know, the homeowners are there. They're kind of rummaging around, you know, their stuff, making phone calls. You know, at that point, you know, depending on the time of day, they need emergency service. They need someone to board up the house, secure the property. So your your first, you know, kind of angle is to offer services that they need right away. And 
in a lot of cases, if they wait and file a claim with their insurance, they may not see an insurance vendor for two, three, four days. And by then, their home is now exposing the public to a potential health risk because little kids will go in the house. There could be looting, which makes the loss worse. So that's the kind of the first thing. So, you know, we stay away from getting involved until the scene is released and clear and the homeowners are, you know, kind of at a point where they're willing to talk about, you know, getting a fence put up, you know, tarping the roof, boarding it up and maybe moving, you know, having help moving contents, you know, valuables to a secure location. So So are you like driving by and assessing kind of where the process is at, or is there somebody that's kind of sitting there? What happens if there's another contractor there? How does all of that kind of play out? Well, that's where it can get a little heated. I mean, so, you know, everybody wants the first shot at the, you know, at the homeowners to be able to solicit them. And so whoever pulls up first, typically there's kind of like an unspoken rule that that person would have the first opportunity to make a pitch. Um, But what happens is, you know, these salesmen that are out there are paid on commission. So a lot of times they don't really care about the rules. They're going to go for that, you know, that 10% that they're looking to get on the, on that, on that contract. And so there's been fistfights, altercations, police called. I mean, it can get ugly for sure. So I personally don't chase, like I'm not the guy there, you know, but companies I work with have teams of salespeople, men and women, uh, multilingual that go out and do this and they do really, really well. So at what point is a contract getting signed? Like, do you think, you know, I think there's maybe a little bit of a difference between a house flood. And if you have somebody approach you soon after there's a flood, there's something not as scary or, um, I don't know, personal, I don't know how to describe it with a flood versus a fire. I think that homeowners that have had a flood might be in a slightly better state to sign a contract than maybe somebody who's just been through a fire, which can be a little bit more traumatic unless it's a hurricane. But when when do you get them to sign a contract? Well, you don't really ever get a contract for reconstruction the day, day one. You get at best a work authorization to either clean, board up, or do emergency services, but you're not going to get to that level uh, of signing a reconstruction contract until you earn the family's trust. Now, the other thing is, is it's a lot less emotional or personal when you're dealing with commercial fires. So if it's a strip mall fire, property manager says, take care of it. We got to get our tenants and our businesses back up and running. They don't, it's not a thing. Yeah. Um, condominiums like HOAs, same thing. You got multiple families involved. They need things done quickly. You know, uh, the, again, the HOA people are going to be a lot less personally attached to the scene. Whereas a single family residence, um, depending on the severity, uh, whether pets were lost or, or family members were injured, that's where it gets a little dicey. So you have to be very sensitive, very careful. And, um, Some people are, you know, it just depends on your personality, your sales style. Some people are very aggressive and they do great. Other people take a soft approach and go in just, you know, um, without really trying to push services, just talk to the people, you know, feel out what their needs are and um, take it real slow. So it varies with with each individual. Mm -hmm. Um, So what, like, how does this affect relationships with adjusters? I mean, do you ever have adjusters that know about a fire and 
well, that wouldn't be chasing. I don't How does that work? Like you're there first, the adjuster comes in, people are working. I, I don't well, quite know what my question is, but. <laughs> yeah, well, I know what you mean. So it used to be, if you chased, you were, you were pretty much blackballed because yeah. it, you know, when you're out there on the street, you are sort of shoulder to shoulder with public adjusters. And those are supposedly, you know, the bad guys, you know, but nowadays, I mean, things have evolved to where they realize, you know, public adjusters are licensed by the state. They serve a purpose. They hold insurance companies accountable. So yeah, I mean, there's bad ones and there's good ones, but yeah, I mean, it, it makes it, um, you know, in some cases you can, depending on the depth of your relationship with an insurance adjuster, some just don't care. They would rather see, you out there if they like you and you're a friend and you've worked with them for for years versus some guy who they don't know who could be a literal nightmare for them so it's it's becoming more acceptable to be uh, to be honest at least okay. in, at least in my area okay so you know referrals are a big way that um restoration companies try to get business or hopefully they've built a kind of a good referral system but in your article when it comes to fire chasing you also talk about it's what you know, not who you know, when it comes to this aspect of getting jobs. So can you dive into that and what that means? Well, again, you know, it, it boils down to information is king. Uh, so out of 10 fires that say happen in my area, I may be interested in one or two. And so you may ask, you know, why is that? So, I mean, some of them, you know, are uh, going to be in you know, less desirable parts of town, which tend to indicate not the best insurance. Um, if they're, uh, the fire happens to be condominiums, condominiums tend to be very complicated, very difficult. And so I personally tend to sort of stay away from those because you're dealing with multiple owners, HOAs, multiple insurance companies and adjusters and limited, very limited coverage. Um, so all of these things play into um, kind of refining down onto which fire is the gem, you know, or in which one is the rotten egg. And so you really want to use that knowledge to identify, oh, this is, this is the fire we really want. You know, it happens to be like, say, in a more affluent area, it's got, you know, seven figures worth of coverage. It's, you know, the, the family just wants the work done and they're not looking to cash out on all the good stuff. And, so it takes a lot to vet these jobs and to figure out which ones the company will actually make a profit on versus the ones that you can tell that, um, you know, they're going to try to make money on the claim and just give you the stuff that nobody really wants to do. Another yeah. one that's so good is um, as you're researching, um, you know, the owners and stuff, you find some that are rental properties. Now, rental properties tend to be low hanging fruit. So those are usually, say, uh, properties where the homeowner lives out of town. They don't have a local contractor. They just need somebody to take care of it. And those are really easy to sign up. And, you know, the renters, they, you know, if they don't have their insurance, you know, they have to kind of figure out their life and what they're going to do. And sometimes you just help, you know, help them make that transition to best you can. And then once they've moved their stuff out or signed a release, then it's just a rebuild job, you know, so. And there's a lot less emotional, um, you know, drama with a rental property versus somebody who's, you know, occupied the you know, homeowner living in the home. So what would you tell contractors at this point who are like, 
I've thought about doing this for a while. I'm worried that I'm going to get blacklisted. I'm worried that I'm going to be looked down upon in my market. I'm worried that people are going to think I'm unethical. I'm worried about all of these things because people have different opinions on fire chasing. So what would you tell somebody who's like, no, I think I want to give this a shot. What do they need to know? Well, I would suggest, you know, go in um, eyes wide open, um, go, go in slow, methodically, and very well prepared in the sense that, you know, if you're going to go and make this jump, um, you know, talk to some of your key uh, clients, you know, key adjusters that you work with on a regular basis. And I'm talking about independent adjusters or non-program adjusters. Because if you're on the program, you're dealing with somebody in a call center in the Midwest, there's no real personal relationship at Mm -hmm. risk. But um, you want to talk to your general adjusters, your regional GAs, and make sure that if you take this step that you're not going to basically cut your know, the nose you know off your face in yep. doing it you know so you have to weigh there there is going to be um you know some risk versus reward and potentially some casualties some loss in the sense that there will be some adjusters who just aren't going to be into it and you know you just have to, to look at your financial situation is, is this something you need to do um if so it's very very lucrative because chasing isn't just about a residential fire or a commercial fire. There are other calls like trees that, you know, split mm-hmm. houses in half, cars into structures, big um, commercial floods resulting from fire sprinklers that discharge. Because every time a fire sprinkler goes off, like at a hotel mm-hmm. where somebody accidentally put that coat hanger over yep. the fire sprinkler. <laughs> Do not are, hang here. Don't hang yeah. yeah. Those are six, six figure floods. Those are a huge jobs. So you know, just the fact that you happen to have gotten there because you heard a call over a radio versus, you know, some other guy getting there before you. I mean, hey, it's a dog eat dog world sometimes, you know, and let the best man win or best girl win. So. So I know that this is kind of like a a sales type position. So when you're looking at a restoration company, what position is it that would typically be the chaser? Is it an estimator who's also like, you know, the salesperson and selling the job, is it the actual sales kind of business person who, who in the company is kind of doing this? Well, it can be. So there are guys who chase who work out of their pickup trucks who basically just have a home office. Mm-hmm. And so that guy is like the, the, the chef, the bottle washer, you know, and the, the cook, the whole nine yards. So, um, you know, there are people who will just you know, go out, they'll coordinate the emergency services, they'll estimate, and then they'll, you know, they, they'll also sell the job. You know, it's like a, a one fit, you know, one guy who does it all, but that's typically a very small contractor. Most of the mid to larger size guys who chase, they'll have a, a salesperson who just will do the sale. Once the sale is, you know, uh, uh, consummated, that guy calls in a project manager and an estimator and they, the salesman then passes the baton onto them and they coordinate the board up, you know, reestablishing the electricity, you know, capping any leaking lines, you know, they sort of entrench themselves in that initial 72 hours of emergency services. So then once, you know, that project manager is kind of finished with his thing, then an estimator will be called in who will walk the loss with the adjuster to agree on the scope of the reconstruction or repairs. 
Okay. So I'm guessing that being a hard-nosed salesperson and you're just here to sell, that is not probably the personality that's going to maybe do well in this. I don't know that that does well in restoration period. So what kind of soft skills does somebody that's going to do this need? I think that probably more so than ever in these instances, you need to empathize and connect right with the property owner before you're approaching that selling stage of it. Right. So what kind of talk about soft skills that are needed? Well, so there are companies to give you an example. Um, first of all, to answer your question, this isn't something that you can just have a canned response. Like people will read right through you in a minute. There are national like franchises that do, you know, that advertise themselves as board up companies. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of them, they have their salesman is actually a retired or uh, off-duty firefighter or uh -huh. fire chief. Well, those guys, I mean, they have a huge advantage because, hey, you know, the firemen who are putting out the fire happen to see the retired chief standing on the curb. And it's uh -huh. just like, you know, the bros are back together. I mean, that's a really good model to, um, <clears throat> you know, to get in early with somebody like that. Now, if you don't have a fire chief or a fire captain or a retired guy on your sales staff and you just have a normal, you know, gal or guy who's wants to, you know, make a sale. Yeah. I mean, you need to be very sensitive to what is going on in this, in these people's life. You need to know what their needs are before they tell you what their needs are. And you have to put yourself, you know, in their shoes. And to a certain degree, you have to have sales skills that make you like a chameleon, which means that you can morph into <clears throat> the person that can you know, make a connection with an 85 year old, you know, retired Navy guy or yeah. a, you know, 25 year old, um, you know, young couple that um, just bought their first home. So you have to have that ability and even culturally, you know, knowing, you know, how different cultures uh, respond, you know, to um, the way that you present yourself. So it, it's, it can be complicated and, um, the way to be most effective, I would say, is, you know, having those skills, those people skills, be sincere, be kind, you know, it's, it's not always going to be about, you know, some of these jobs just aren't going to be a job, you know, you may just go in and get one piece of it, and that is it. And maybe that's all you want, you know, but um, the neat thing about it is, is when you show up, you know, if there's 10 guys, 10 contractors out on the street, chances are they're going to pick one of them to do those initial emergency services because it is an immediate need, especially in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be incumbent on whoever is the most convincing and honest and um, kind and helpful, you know, information. You know, a lot of people who are chasing will use my book, The Red Guide to Recovery. They'll hand them a copy of it and say, hey, you know, here's some good information. And when somebody is giving somebody a resource of knowledge like that, they're, the people's guard kind of come down. They realize, hey, you know, these people are really honestly trying to help me. I mean, it's not all about, I mean, you know, granted there is money involved, but, you know, uh, they appreciate it. And so when you're being helpful and sincere, that goes a long way. Mm -hmm. So I don't know yeah. if that answered the question, but. Yes. Yes, it totally does. Okay. So, okay. So you, that was a good segue. Actually, you were talking about your book and I want to talk about that a little bit as well, because there, um, 
it's helpful if property owners know a little bit about this process before they get into it, if they ever get into it, so that they don't become victims of the process, right? In addition to being victims of a property loss itself. So um, talk a little bit about your book and kind of what's in there and how that can help, how it can be a resource both for the contractors and then for their potential customers. Right. Well, so the book was designed specifically because, you know, I saw predation, a lot of the bad characters out there victimizing people, the, these chasers who were not, you know, scrupulous. They didn't have, uh, you know, any high moral character. And they were literally just, you know, you would drive by these jobs a year and a half, two years later, and they are still damned. Nothing had happened because these people got, a, got you know, together with the wrong guy. Mm-hmm. And so the book was designed to put a homeowner on a level playing field. And it walks them through, you know, the very minute the fire truck leaves the scene, like, what do you do first? You know, talks about emergency services, the board up, the cleanup, not spoiling the evidence in case, you know, the fire investigators need certain areas to be untouched. It's very um, detailed as far as, you know, beginning to end of what a homeowner, primarily a homeowner, not a commercial property, but a homeowner, what they're going to do, how they're going to navigate this process from the fire incident to entering their brand new home. And it has stuff about safety, smoke and fire and you know water damage, um, resources that are provided by the federal government and local governments, uh, trauma intervention and grief counseling, and a whole chapter on scam prevention. You know, and that's the sad thing is that I wish that we could have this conversation more about how do you sell these jobs and it wasn't, there wasn't this stigma of you know this bad element that's out there, but I think that that the industry can change that perception by mm-hmm. continually providing a superior service and using the the tools and resources and knowledge we that we use every day for the insurance companies when we're called out by them. None of that should change when you're out there, you know, doing direct sales like this. It's just a little more aggressive. Is all. Yep. Yeah. And people don't, you know, some people don't like party crashers. Some people want to invite their boys and their girls because they can control, you know, the players, the costs and everything. And, and so I get that, you know, I mean, I've worked on both sides. So I've, I've been with public adjusters who are so aggressive. They make the insurance companies just scream because they just, you know, are relentless. And then I've worked on the carrier side where I've fought against those guys, you know, and, you know, their, their gains and stuff. So I have a little bit of an advantage because I've worked extensively on both sides. So I've been able to sort of put some of that knowledge in the red guide to recovery so that restoration contractors can maybe have some knowledge that they don't even maybe know about what goes on while they're in bed, you know, with their family asleep at night, what's going on on a job they would have got because it happens to be a carrier that normally calls them, but they missed it because the chaser got it first. So having a chaser out there can also ensure that the jobs that rightfully should be yours stay with you. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, guarding your chickens <laughs> to, to a certain degree. Okay. Okay. All right. Anything well, else? Can you I have to... one thing? Can I have yes, one thing to that? Yes. That was my next so question. As an example. <laughs> so, so as an example, so I was like a, um, you know, a vendor for, a, you know, I'll just, you know, the farmer's insurance and I was on their approved vendor program, you know, and they would call me with fires. And then all of a sudden my volume of fires started to diminish. And I was, I kept going out doing free estimates because my competitors kept getting these farmer's fires. 
So finally, I just said, you know, I'm dispatching a team and we're going to go. And so we started chasing them, getting our farmers and we were keeping them. So we recovered the, the losses of these valuable jobs that were going to our competitors only because we had to tweak our business a little bit to have a presence there 24-7. And then with the fire department calling you out, like if you're on those dispatch lists, that makes it even easier because then you can tell the adjuster, hey, I didn't chase it. I got called by the fire department. Well, that makes it a lot better. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> Giving <laughs> there you, you some go. of the secret sauce. There you go. Okay. Anything else that you want to add to the conversation or about anything else related to anything? Well, there is some cost involved to, to chase. You know, you have to have, you know, the right trucks to be able to work in, in the middle of the night on a, say on a Christmas evening while it's raining, you know, with all the <laughs> lights, the generators, you know, I mean, there's, there's a learning curve and I help teach, you know, other contractors like how, you know, to, to do this properly. Um, and there's some ethics, a lot of ethics actually involved, you know, to do it right. And, um, and also how to vet jobs. So there definitely is a learning curve. You can't just say, hey, I'm just gonna go and send some guy out or some girl out, you know, and just, you know, middle of the night. There's, um, there is definitely some education to do this, just like it would be in any other part of restoration. If you're gonna be a flood guy, you gotta go through IICRC courses, learn the science. This is, there's definitely a science to this. Yes. So. Yes. Okay. And so then maybe for a future conversation, we can talk about um, the science of keeping yourself safe when you are a restore going into a fire and um, all the hazards that can be in a fire, but that's a whole different conversation. And I know you're very well versed on that one as well. So people sure. can find lots of resources on that floating around. All right, Sean, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it to anybody who has listened or watched this interview. Thank you very much. And you can look for more from Sean on cnrmagazine.com. Sean, thank you so much. I hope you have an awesome day. For more restoration today, visit our website, cnrmagazine.com, or find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts.